what did I do today? So I got, I think I have such a complex when it comes to cooking. I just like, I have to make something good today. I don't know why I decided this. And I made this very labor intensive like shrimp pasta where I like separate the shrimp from the shells, cook the shells in oil and then strain that oil so it's like nice and shrimpy and then cook the like shellless shrimp in that. And so what you get with that is you can just like, it has all the flavor but none of the shells basically. But it's just like introduces so much more dishware to it because it's like, all right, strain it. Like, all right, now there's like a, <laughs> yeah. yeah, something to pour it into. And it like, the shells themselves absorb a weird amount of oil. So you, I poured in so much olive oil and I got like yay much of like shrimpy oil. Yeah, oil. you're just f trying to figure out a way to max out how to make this dish as against your religion as possible. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Because yeah. last week it was spam. And yeah, now, it was spam and now it's shrimp. Yeah. As I bought this stuff, I was leaving the Mariano's and there's this like Jewish guy. And I know he's Jewish because he like walks to the synagogue in front of me all the time with his son. Um, and I saw them as I left and I was just like, what do I have in my bag that's not kosher? <laughs> it's, it's probably a lot in there, but yeah. For something to be kosher, can do people ever buy things that aren't kosher and then get them blessed so, just so they can eat it? Nah, mm -hmm. no. Um, it's gotta be from the get, like, kosher. But the rules are, uh, there's all these different competing, like, accredited <laughs> accreditors of kosherness. Um, but basically, food, like, meat is subject to one thing, a dairy is subject to another. And there's a whole class of stuff that's just proven to not have any dairy or meat in it. And that's like, I'm pretty sure Takis or like Cheeto. <laughs> or, I mean, Cheetos probably has real cheese in it. Um, or maybe they don't. Who knows? Um, but yeah, those things are like, those are easy peasy. Fig there's Newtons. no blessing in that. Fig Newtons? Yeah. I don't know. In the binders? Yeah, I'm sure there's no dairy stuff in there. But yeah. so no, like they're anything, actually vegan. Like 100%. Well, it, Oreos are. I know that. Oreos? Yeah, Oreos. Oh, yeah, vegan, the yeah. Hydrox, though, the like thing that Oreo is ripping off of, those are actually like real cream in there. Yeah. Why do I know this? I'm not a, <laughs> I don't know. I guess they're just dating a lot of vegetarians and stuff. Um, but, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, welcome to the inaugural episode of Silent Generation, a cultural analysis podcast with an urbanist bent. I'm Joseph. And I'm Nathan. And this week we're going to be discussing Flaneur. So we chose Flaneur for the first one just because, um, I don't know, it's got like the kind of, it's a cultural way of perceiving a city, I guess. But you want to hit us with like the, the dictionary definition first? Yeah, so Flaneur is primarily a noun and it can be used as a verb, but it's very confusing to conjugate. It traditionally depicts a male. A Flaneur is an ambivalent figure of urban affluence and modernity representing the ability to wander detached from society with no purpose than to be an acute observer of industrialized contemporary life. Yeah, so it came about like coined by Charles Baudelaire um, and he's often called the first modernist and that's like something that's really entangled with the concept of flaneur is that like, I don't know, you couldn't have been a flaneur, you know, 50 to 100 years earlier. There's something about like the kind of onset of modernity, urban life, you know, getting away from a village where you know everyone into this sense of like a anonymous city where you can observe people and you don't know them, you don't know their story. Yeah, for Baudelaire, one of his like premier ideas with the topic was uh, that it's about sort of obfuscating yourself in a crowd. And it's a component of it is not only just observing 
your contemporaries and learning about them, but also reintegrating yourself into the social fabric of your city. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's definitely like a pretty you know, strong French angle to this. And the time that he was writing this was just such like a pivotal time in France because they were going from like such a classic like winding streets, European city, like little dusty shops into like Haussmann's renovation of France, of, of Paris, where just these like the tiny streets were bulldozed for these like large grand avenues and boulevards. And so, I don't know, it's weird to think about like that they were probably feeling nostalgic in that moment. But it's a very forward looking thing. I think the Flaneur is like not so much of a nostalgic figure. I think he is just like of the moment. He's a man of his moment. Yeah, so um, Baron Haussmann, between 1853 and 1870, he created the Boulevard system in Paris, which I'm actually really not a fan of, because upon visiting Paris, I found that the aesthetics of the city were very similar to both my home city of Chicago, but also other places I'd visited, um, like New York City, where um, the Boulevard system was adopted as one of the first kind of global urbanist trends. So for me, it just has never really felt aesthetically special. Although with the invention of boulevards and their implementation in Paris, it did give rise to a lot of um, cultural ideas around the city. Mm -hmm. So know. what is your take on Paris? I, so I only went there as a kid once. Um, I, don't think I'm, I don't think I can speak too well on it. But I'm just like a sucker for European wandering in general. Like when I visited like Berlin back in college, I just like left my mom and sister behind in the hotel and just like walked kind of purposefully like trying to, I don't know, feel what it's like to just wander. I've been to Paris once for only two days. I actually got, um, I was able to get a ticket to go to, from Chicago to Paris for only $300. When was this? Um, this was in like 2019. But it was actually part of a very lengthy journey <laughs> where I went. Um, so it was through this now defunct airlines called Wow Airlines. Yeah, yeah, that was like the government like of Iceland was just subsidizing flights. I forgot they flew to places besides like Reykjavik. Yeah, yeah. so I was able to get a ticket through them and then got some other tickets too. But within 10 days, I went from um, Chicago to New York to Iceland to Paris through, to uh, there you go. Porto. And then you'd think I would have gone from Porto back to Chicago, but I did the whole thing in reverse. So oh, I then went every step. from Porto to Paris, to Reykjavik, oh. to New York City, to Chicago. That makes more sense. Yeah, and then um, upon getting back, I went straight from that into jury duty for two weeks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was on a federal trial for this um, Chicago police officer who was busted for... Um, creating fake warrants and going to drug dealers' homes off-duty and um, hassling them for drugs and then selling them secondhand and then using that money for other things. Isn't but there a movie about that? I don't is think so. Bad, not, not about that particular thing, but about that idea. Like, there's no way this guy doesn't, is not the first one to think of that. The yeah. fake warrants, that might be a, an original turn, but no, it's like classic dirty cop behavior. It yeah, sounds I mean, very 70s, honestly. I mean, he was, I think, starting to do that in the 80s or 90s. Oh, um, oh, this wasn't like a, oh, wow. No, okay, yeah, so he, um, his name was Eddie Hicks, actually. He has a Wikipedia page. Oh, But well, he um, was doing this for at least 10 years, maybe 20. Um, then he was retired for a bit, and then he was like, okay, let's do it again. And then he got caught in well, so he wasn't FBI even, wait, He retired, wait, so he wasn't even a part of the police force when he was like... When he got caught. So he got away with it his entire career. 
And then he only got caught oh, um, in like an FBI sting like Damn, a year or two he went after back he retired. For more. Oh, yeah. But yeah, then they caught him in a sting operation, um, but he was able to get bail. And then after he got bail, he got a false identity and fled to Detroit for 10 years. And then You can still do that? He did that. Respect. Um, I just always thought since the internet, like you can't. You can't have a secret family anymore. Like you can't just abscond to another city and restart your life. But no. No, there were something like 12 other men using the same false alias. Wait, so... (laughs) Damn. No, I know know as much about this guy as you can know because I was on this trial for two weeks. Yeah. Did you take lead in the jury room? You think you became like a a soft power at least? I don't know. I feel like a natural hierarchy of forms. No, I was kind of like driftless at the time because I was like straight out of college and trying to figure out... Hot off your Euro trip. Yeah, I was hot off my Euro trip and Mm -hmm. I was trying to figure out like what to do. Mm. No, it was because it was actually a federal trial. It was for all of like Northern Illinois. So there were people on the case who were from like Aurora um, and Rockford and they were commuting into the city. But no, I like... They were all normies. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like the young kid in the room. Um, but I actually ended up not being in the deliberation because I was an alternate, oh. which I didn't actually know until the final day and they didn't need me. So I never oh, got man. to be in the deliberation. But so this was right after your France trip, right? You were saying? Yeah, yeah. right after my France trip. So, and so you didn't like France? You didn't like Paris? No. Um, so I went to Paris in part because I had a friend from um, Chicago who... Um, is Polish and also fluent in French, but she was staying in Paris. And uh, I went there for two days before Portugal. Portugal was the real place I wanted to go because yeah. I speak Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just very underwhelmed. It just felt, it felt like sort of like generically metropolitan. Mm. The architecture definitely had a distinct style, but as usual with everywhere I travel actually, I always find that I like the food in Chicago better than pretty much everywhere I go. There's a warm-blooded American, I know, yeah. (laughs) Respect. (laughs) No, people say that about um, Chicago, like, surprisingly, it has, like, the best food, which I always was sort of um, skeptical of, but at this point, after going to so many places and only finding, like, one or two restaurants I like in each place, Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of true. Yeah. No, um, I had a foreign exchange student lived with my family in high school and she was from Germany. We visited her like, you know, back in Germany and we saw all these Mexican restaurants that had popped up there and that just, there can't be a lot of Mexican like immigrants to Germany, but I think through American pop culture, they've been exposed to like Mexican food and so they want it and they have this desire for it. But we like, we asked like, Yana, like is the Mexican food any good? And she's like, no, it's like absolute shit. Like it's so <laughs> bad. Like it's just... And I think that, like, maybe, I mean, there were enough of these places where, like, Germans were obviously patronizing these businesses, but I think they just didn't have that, like, the forbidden knowledge that Yana had, <laughs> like, having, like, Las Vegas Mexican food, like, real, I don't know, pretty authentic stuff. I mean, I find that Mexican food is good everywhere I go. I've never had Mexican food that I thought was bad except for, like, American diners, like, when they had, <laughs> like, a Mexican section on their uh, Oh, they, call it, they always call it the items. south of the border section. They yeah. They're always like, oh, let's venture south of the border and get a huevos rancheros. <laughs> yeah, that's the only Mexican food I've had that I didn't like. I actually find that stuff in Chicago to be good because a lot of, like, Mexi- a lot of diners are, like, staffed by, like, Mexican, like, kitchen staff. Um, and so, I don't know, I've had, like, good al pastor like, <laughs> in a diner before. So, I don't know. I can be surprised. Yeah, so, I mean, Flanur to now, I think the word has had a bit of, like, a bounce back. You can, 
You can catch all these articles kind of starting around 2010 or so. I don't know what spurred this. I think it was maybe just more of a focus towards like in a more intentional city life. Um, I think you could maybe tie it up with the kind of cultural fascination with the hipster that happened. From what I see online, it's actually been underreported. I don't think it's had as much cultural analysis as you'd expect because like there are articles, podcasts, videos about it, but it's always from like a very literary perspective mm -hmm. because yeah. the people who are really interested in the term um, seem to be coming from an academic angle where they're interested in French poetry, but that's not really the case for most people. But this might be a good place to bring up the idea of the Lindy Walk. And before we talk about the Lindy Walk, we should define what Lindy is. So the term Lindy refers to a restaurant that existed for a really long time and sort of by virtue of how long it had already lasted, it, it was projected to last even longer. Um, and so the idea of something being Lindy is that the lifespan of something is proportional to its current age or by virtue of just being old, it's going to last longer. And so Lindy Walk doesn't really refer to the act of walking itself. It's just this guy, Lindy Man, I think, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Lindy Man lives in Chicago and has like an online presence. Um, but when someone's referring to a Lindy Walk, they're referring to the act of flaneuring or, or they're referring to Flannery. Yeah. See, it's really hard to conjugate. It just sounds like an Irish last name when you say Flannery. <laughs> like, like yeah. yeah. Yeah, but like, how do you even talk about that in the past tense? But anyway, so yeah, the Lindy Walk is sort of wandering aimlessly, um, mm -hmm. taking in the world. And it has a lot of parallels with the idea of Flannery or Flannery. Mm -hmm. So Lindy Man, I, I saw this one, like someone made a post about him where he started off saying that bikes aren't Lindy, um, that they're this newfangled creation of like the late 1800s and they have no staying power because they haven't been here long enough. But what he really advocated for was like uh, rollerblading because that can use pedestrian infrastructure. You don't, you don't need additional infrastructure for rollerblades, um, which is, I think, complete bullshit. <laughs> it just shows that the, like, you, can, you can be wrong every so often. Bikes as a form are so eternal, like just like sewing machines. It's like, I feel like we're never going to really find a way to like improve on them. Although we've recently like can e-bikes have become a thing. So mm -hmm. that's like one innovation, but it kind of came out of the blue. But otherwise, it's kind of like they're never going to find a way to do that better, I think. Yeah, but, no. Yeah, I do find that the idea or from a cyclist perspective, their idea of like a modern street is so tacky. It's just like all of this, like... <laughs> it does take a bit. Like, there is some separation. There's all this stuff on the street. Like, they yeah. want all these, like, bullards and painted lanes. Mm -hmm. um, honestly, like, I just want a brick road. That's what's going to slow down mm -hmm. cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's going to make it harder for you to ride your bike, but it's uh -huh. prettier, so... No, yeah. I... The thing is that, like, yeah, pedestrians, bikes, and cars trying to navigate around each other is hectic and crazy. When it's just cyclists and pedestrians given enough space, everything happens at a hopefully slow enough speed that like you can kind of negotiate, you can make eye contact, you can like figure it out. But like the second you shrink the space at all, that all goes to shit. Like that's just like a narrow sidewalk you've ever had like an aggressive cyclist on there. Like, I don't know, not to be like a complete hall monitor, but I am like the first to yell at cyclists on the sidewalk. I feel like it's like a way of evening it out because like, I feel like there's like cycling karma. Like whenever I, I don't blow through red lights, but I will stop at a red light, look around and then like sneak past if I don't see a car coming. But I still feel bad about that. And so I feel like the way I 
even out that karma just by like yelling at disrespectful cyclists. Yeah. And there's one guy I've seen twice now on the north side who, if there's a bike lane, like he's like this long-haired, I think he has dreads, but he bikes exclusively on sidewalks and very, very fast. And he does little tricks where he like hops up and he'll like put his body on one side of the bike so that he's like has both legs on the side of it and he dodges around people and it's insane. And I've tried to yell at him. I've seen him twice now, but if I catch him a third time, like... Yeah, that's like so when people aggressive. bike uh, without their arms. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah. I injured myself as a child doing that. And that was such like a night, neatly wrapped lesson, I think. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, you bike without your arms, like you fucking... Have, have you ever heard the story of when my boyfriend Riley got hit by a cyclist? No. Okay, so he was leaving a place to get his haircut that had no setbacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you just so, straight into the Yeah, he, he looked one way and then was about to look the other and then immediately got hit by a bike. But yeah, the people cutting his hair, he saw them the next time he got his hair cut. And they said, like, oh, we thought someone fell off the roof because <laughs> he hit the sidewalk that hard. <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah. And the guy yeah. riding the bike, he actually flipped over the handlebars and hit uh, one of the hairstylist cars um, and oh, dented it God. with his face. Jesus. What yeah. came of this? Like, what? Was there any recompense? Was there, like... No. Just kind of informal, just like, hey man, later. <laughs> like, no, Riley had to get carried into the, oh my God. Into the salon to the bathroom because he was bleeding. And Jeez. Did the guy leave yeah. the scene? Like, no, he was just saying sorry. It was like a teenager. Oh. Oh, but yeah, I actually was on the phone call with a friend at the time when this happened. And then Riley called me like five times. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I just didn't feel like picking up. But then Riley came home and walked through the door and his... His leg was covered in blood. Oh my god! <laughs> and I was on the phone with my friend, who was like a doctor. <laughs> I was like, "Ah, oh, my boyfriend's bleeding. Really uh, I need to go." <laughs> you just you screened five calls from your significant other, not to judge, but no, I judge, don't know. Right? He, yeah, he, he, <laughs> he does that sometimes. So it's really funny. <laughs> um, no, so my bad Chicago bike crash was I was just biking. I was in the road. And then again, like, yeah, a teenager, he like walked his, he biked out of an alleyway that was made blind by like a taller than average car. There was just like an SUV or something. And so he just kind of like poked out from there and I just couldn't get out of the way fast enough. So I hit his front wheel and I went like ass over tea kettle. I flew over the, over the wheel and landed and I broke my elbow. Um, and then I just like looked at him like, what the hell, man? Um, and he's just That's like, what that scar is, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's did a long you, one. Did you puncture the skin when you fell? No, it wasn't like a oh. compound fracture. No. That's good. I'm so horrified of those. I would, I would like, that's terrifying they can even put that back. But yeah, no, there wasn't any bone showing or anything. But I was like, what the hell, man? And he just said to me like, damn, that's crazy. Whoa, man, damn. And then just biked away. <laughs> <laughs> when I was still on the ground, I remember like looking at him bike away as so I'm like, yeah, curling up in pain. But yeah. And then I've seen the word, I don't know, I'm so, I used to be more of a bike nerd and like look, look at different bike models and stuff. And the word flaneur does pop up. In cycling, there's also the term randonneur, which is like a type of kind of aimless bike touring where it's not about speed. Um, it's about the kind of journey and the experience. So maybe, I mean, it's also got a French. It has the same uh, or suffix at the end of it. But yeah, flaneuring on a bike... I guess it can be done, but it's just, it has to happen at like walking pace. I don't think joggers yeah. are flaneurs either. You know, <laughs> like something interesting. So in Portuguese, the way you say someone's biking is like, like they're walking 
they're walking over from the bike. <laughs> you say the same thing if you're riding a horse, where you're like walking up the horse. horse. <laughs> that's oh man, that's just so like interesting. Like really, they never found like a <laughs> thing in the middle to do that. I don't yeah. know word wise, but no walking the bike. I don't like that. I don't. I don't think it's like that in Spanish. Is yeah, it? probably not. No, man. So, what do you think is like the least Lindy place that you can walk? Definitely, like, it's funny because I think master planning is kind of something that keeps on coming up because the origin of Flannering is in one of the first, not one of the first, one of the first modern master planning experiments of Hausmann's. But I think college campuses in America can either be the best or the worst places to Flannure because, like, there's much more foot traffic, so there's much more people watching you can do. Granted, it's less variety of people. It's all people in the same stage of life. But here in Chicago, we have UIC, which is University of Illinois at Chicago. It was built in a very top-down kind of way, where they took this little Italian neighborhood and they just bulldozed it and plopped a modernist campus on it. But this was at that later stage of modernism, where when we look back on it now, we call the architecture of it brutalist. But yeah, it's a lot of like jagged concrete, not so much like rectilinear forms, but like kind of orthogonal, a lot of 45 degrees um, and just like, yeah, ugly concrete, but it's not a place you super want to walk around. They've st yeah. stuck more trees there, so that always helps, but. Yeah, and it was originally actually named the University of Illinois at Chicago Circle, which was in reference to the Jane Byrne interchange because there's two uh, highways that cross each other right next to the campus. But yeah, I think of it as being also like not a very Lindy place to walk because the way the campus was designed was to um, make it difficult to walk in a straight line. And also it was designed in a way that was disorienting on purpose so that students wouldn't really be able to organize as effectively. There are open spaces, like there's definitely spaces between the buildings, but mm -hmm. even like the way they have their gardens, it's like you have to like keep finding a way to cross from one section to another mm -hmm. um, between the buildings. And you mentioned actually that they have, they used to have like pedestrian walkways between the buildings that were elevated concrete structures. Yeah, they had these rectilinear elevated walkways that would take you from academic buildings to dorms. And they were all kind of on the second floor of things, but they were very exposed. So in winter, they were like very rough. Like I think a lot of UIC could be contrasted with IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology on the south side, um, which also was built in a master plan modernist way. But IIT had actually like underground tunnels between academic buildings. A lot of them have been, have been closed down. Um, but yeah, so they were kind of like rough in the Chicago winter. They fr bridges freeze over easily as well. But also they just kind of caged in the campus. Like you gave people these like pedestrian expressways where they didn't have to kind of wander around. So maybe the current shape of UIC is like an overcorrection from that, where you can't walk in a straight line anywhere, but before that was all you could do. You were like, literally had blinders on. Um, oh, that actually made me think of something I've seen on like urbanist Twitter, where there are, the, <laughs> there are these sidewalks in the Sun Belt where uh, <laughs> planners will make these sidewalks that are in curves that look cool to drivers as they're driving past them. But for someone who's actually walking, it's super inconvenient. <laughs> yeah, I think in Las Vegas, I you know, you're just walking around the kind of trails that are um, interspersed in the nicer, newer suburbs. Like they'll, they'll just put an undulation that's obviously not there on the road next to it. Like they're just kind of trying to give people yeah, something, I guess. But it's funny to think that like, oh, entertainment for drivers. 
like when they have those rumble strips that like play a song or something <laughs> but are inconvenient <laughs> to cyclists like the things we do to amuse drivers that are at the detriment of others but i think what we were kind of talking about with uic is like desire paths like people do want to take essentially the fastest route to where they're walking but people will naturally take like i don't know like when i'm walking around my, my neighborhood i will avoid like the commercial street if it's too car heavy and I'll walk on like a quiet residential street, if that's what I'm feeling. But IIT's campus was actually like designed around desire paths or one building was. So like in the fifties, the whole campus was built um, or planned by Mies van der Rohe, great mid-century architect. Um, but the campus is in this weird spot where it's split in half by the Green Line train um, and a series of parking lots as well. And so what the architect Ram Koolhaas did is they did like a, a pedestrian study of where people were walking and it all kind of crosses in this one point underneath the tracks. And so they designed the hallways of the building around that. And this is now like the McCormick Tribune Campus Center. But an older alumni told me that everyone just called it the butt when it was first built. It was building under the tube. But um, yeah. yeah. Um, have, you ever, have you ever seen this? So this picture is of the walkways at Ohio State University. Wow. So um, originally so this radial. was just an open field, and mm -hmm. then they converted the bizarre paths into permanent mm -hmm. walkways between the buildings. We'll put this in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty to look at, and it's probably efficient. Oh, there's even that picture is like of just the actual desire paths before they were paved. Wait, scroll up. No, that's just a picture oh. of desire paths. Oh, never mind. But no, <laughs> okay. um, th this image but, up here. Um, which, yeah, that one actually has like what it looked like before wow. compared to now. But yeah, um, that's a campus that's less hostile to yeah. its students. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I do think that there is like a sort of like populist undercurrent to the idea of the Flinner. Because like when you're out in public, you build more social trust uh, with mm -hmm. the people you share your, sit your city with. Like whether it be that you're walking around or you're on public transit or in public libraries or even like sending your kids to public school, the more you are um, integrating with public institutions, the less you're afraid of like your fellow citizens. Like mm -hmm. I find that the people that are the most isolated in their like car bubbles, they're the ones who are the least trusting of um, the other people around them. Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, working in construction, you meet a lot of very like car-oriented people who live in the suburbs and just kind of like use their cars to just teleport to, you know, where the jobs are in the city. Um, and those are the people who have like always cautioned me the most whenever, like when I live in the south side, they'd be like, oh my God, and they'd remark on that. And yeah, they're like the most afraid people. But I kind of catch that in myself, I feel. If I have like a long stretches of just driving and not taking transit, I think that like my, my trust erodes lightly. And then like my car was in the shop, so I was taking the train to work and I was just filled with this, like, ah, oh, all my, like, fellow citizens here on the train, and everyone's all well-behaved and quiet and just kind of, like, eyes on the prize in terms of we're all heading to work, like, no one's messing with each other. Yeah. I feel like once you hit a, th a certain threshold, though, at least for me, and actually probably not for others, I found that, like, I don't really think I could regress in terms of my trust in others now. Just, like... Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever told you this, but I actually was at the Jackson um, Blue Line station a few years ago and saw someone shoot a gun at someone else. And they shot the gun kind of in my direction. Oh, my God. I got really freaked out. And it definitely, like, amped me up for a while. But yeah, yeah, no, no. I didn't stop using trains because of that. No. Yeah, of course not. Like, my story on that is, God, we are not really painting Chicago great right now. But I was at 31st Street Beach when it was shot up. And it was like I was between... 
the lake and the shooter. Um, I didn't know what direction the bullets were going or anything, so I just like ran into the lake, basically. But I had all my friends' phones with me because they were all like swimming, um, and so I had like no way to contact them. And I also didn't want to get the phones underwater either, so I just like ran into the lake as far as I could, holding these phones above my head. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. Wait, who are these friends? Were these gay rugby friends? These are not gay rugby friends. These are, <laughs> these, are these are just friends back in college. Um, but, but yeah, Thirty First Street Beach, and I still went back. Even that summer, I think. And I remember, like, after, like, the commotion of the shooting, everyone, most people started to pack up, um, and people just started to kind of clear out. Tons of cops were already there when the shooting came out. Like, they just keep cops posted up at 31st Street. Um, But I did see some people staying after, and I'm like, they're actually the logical ones here. Like, there's not going to be another shooting in the next few hours. Like, in fact, this is probably the safest that 31st Street Beach is right after a shooting. You know, yeah. Um, but yeah, I was like shaken up from that. I just remember like going, like, going back to my apartment, and it was like a whole day outside. We was a little buzzed, pretty sunburned. And I just remember coming back in the shower and just like sitting down in the shower. And if you ever do that, you know, you're at a pretty low point. Yeah, uh, I actually. Um, so after that shooting happened, within the following month, I think that I was on a train downtown, um, the Red Line. And this, the train kind of paused at one of the stations um, underground. And then people just started to get off the trains and run. They got really scared that there was a mass shooting. <laughs> I was freaked out. Because that's actually one of my biggest concerns with um, taking the trains is that a mass shooting would happen on them. Because there's really nowhere for you to go. Oh, um, no, yeah. Like, even if you tried to go for one of the doors, it's like you can't get them open in time. Yeah. But yeah, I was really freaked out. But yeah, in the day after that, um, I almost got shot at the Blue Line station. Oh, but what happened at the Red Line station was it was just a fire. Uh, oh. It smelled like tar. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, yeah, but after the shooting at the Jackson Blue Line station, I just went grocery shopping. Yeah. And then, yeah, I just kept going. Mm-hmm. You're tougher than me, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I even like called in and I was like buddy-buddy with my boss at the internship I was working at the time. And I'm just like... I'm just gonna be an hour late. <laughs> so I told him like, and I was never late ever. I was always the first one of our team in the office. But I was like, you just gotta give me some time in the morning <laughs> to get over yeah. that. But yeah. It sucks when you have to do that with like a boss or something. I remember one time in college, I was taking the train on like a Sunday morning very, very early. Cause I worked in admissions and we were doing an on-campus event. And um, some guy came on the train with a knife <laughs> and it was like, this is a holdup. And then, <sighs> Man, he got, train then robbery. He, that's Lindy, actually. <laughs> I think that's very vintage. But yeah, he came on and then he was like, wait, actually, I want to do the other car first. And then he got off. What? Did he just like <laughs> read your car and being like, oh, this is like a low rent car. There's not going to be enough for me to steal. There's no like Canada Goose jackets and like up to date yeah. iPhones. Like what? But yeah, he got off the car and then he went to the other car and then we, the train, when it got to the next station, was at it for like 10 minutes. I was just sitting there being like, what is happening? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, um, I shouldn't have absolved all responsibility, but I was like a gay, uh, fruity college student. Yeah. I didn't have it in me really to like contact the conductor, but yeah, yeah I don't think anyone got hurt. But yeah. yeah, I had to show up to work and be like, <laughs> um, yeah, there's a guy with a knife and that's why I was slightly late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you just have to like... <laughs> 
<laughs> you get some pity out of your boss, but yeah. But speaking of being gay on the train, um, I, I think I told you about the time. Not to keep the like, I don't know, transit horror stories going. We will get back to Flanur. But I was on a train and there was like just a very crazy guy and he was mumbling to himself. He was mumbling about like Black Panther had just came out and he was like, man, fuck Black Panther. Like back when like we used to have real movies like Blade with Wesley Snipes. And he's like, nah, fuck Wesley Snipes. He was having this whole conversation with himself. And I was just like, I don't know. When he got off the train, I like looked at my fellow normal train goer and I made like a, a face, I guess. But I didn't realize that the crazy guy saw me make the face as he left the train. So he hopped back on the train and he says like, what the fuck are you looking at, F slur? Um, and I don't know. I, was, I didn't think I was dressed especially gay or anything. But yeah, I was just like, man, I almost just got bashed while being straight on the train. <laughs> like that'd be that would suck to be the first guy, the first straight guy to get gay bashed on the brown line. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've only ever been called that word a few times. One of the times I did, I was hanging out in high school with one of my like three straight guy friends I had at the time, and I was hanging out with him downtown, and someone called us <laughs> the f word, and I felt so bad for him. I was like. Man, you're like doing God's work by being friends with me, yeah. and then you get called that. Yeah, he caught, he caught a stray. <laughs> he caught a stray on that one. But yeah, so yeah, like safety is a part of like being able to just feel like you can like safely and purposely walk through a city. The class element to it, um, I think that's another thing that's like in the earlier uses of the term was more important. The idea is that like this is someone who's a man of means who doesn't really have to be, I mean, everyone had to be a pedestrian back then. You know, now, not everyone, there was some campaign for pedestrian safety that was like, everyone's a pedestrian. And their thing was like, even if you're a car driver, there's gotta be some point where you're walking. But I think in truly suburban areas, that's not true. I think you can truly like never be a pedestrian if you just leave your heated garage and then park at your office building. Like you're only a pedestrian for like five minutes in the grocery store parking lot. Yeah, I mean, the people that I, oftentimes when I go into like, like a Whole Foods, I'll see all these people that look really, really healthy. And I mean, (laughs) I mean, I mean, not in the way like, oh, I'm in a Whole Foods, they're healthy, but they just look so like, well fed and put together in a way that I don't see uh, as much in public. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that they're just driving around all the time. I don't see them. Yeah, I think there's like, I had a stretch of no car, public transit, crazy long commute. And I think one of the things is like, you have to have a backpack on you to carry like all of your essentials and stuff. And you have to like be dressed for the winter actually. Like, so it's something I always noticed about like my suburban friends when I went to school in Chicago and I met people from the Chicago suburbs, I was prepared for winter coming from Las Vegas. I bought wool socks. I had like, you know, Uniqlo heat tech, like the, <laughs> the warm long johns and stuff. And I bought myself like a Carhartt jacket. Um, and my friends would just be wearing like cotton ankle socks and vans like well into winter. And then they would get like too cold when we were like taking the train in the city. I'm like, oh, you never took public transit before. <laughs> like you never, like to you, the Chicago winter is like legit not as bad because you just drive everywhere. But yeah, so those people do just kind of appear and they just look less. Kind yeah, of it's always they climate get smaller control. Jackets, yeah. Um, but to circle back to the class thing, so the term flaneur has a pretty tight association with dandies and dandyism. Mm-hmm. So dandies were like a contemporary social group, maybe you could even say subculture, but there are all these guys uh, mm-hmm. who are kind of fruity, yeah. like Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. There's this quote from Oscar Wilde uh, where he said, I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless 
and sensual ease. I amuse myself with being a flaneur, a dandy, a man of fashion. I surround myself with the smaller natures and the meaner minds. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I'm trying to think what our modern equivalent of that is, but I guess that would be someone who just like, uh, he was alluding to being like a spendthrift, you know, uh, on fashion, which um, I'm sure there's people who do that nowadays. Maybe hype beasts. Maybe the modern like supreme fanboy hype beast is someone who's like getting caught up in that. No, but, the modern dandy is just a Gen Z TikTok boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Broccoli top TikTok boy <laughs> with like nine rings on his fingers. <laughs> but I think that stuff is actually cheap. I don't think you could like really be, you know, as, what's the word, profligate as uh, Oscar Wilde in his spending. But yeah, flaneur and dandy. Um, there's a, a light style component to flaneur that comes wrapped up in the class thing of like, you know, this is someone of means who has, uh, I think the flaneur sees himself as intentional in a way that when he looks at other people on the street, he doesn't think that they're intentional, you know, um, that they're just living their lives, but he is like above it all and observing. So I think that part of flaneur, maybe don't do that so much because it just feels like, that's like you just it's assuming that like people don't have their own interior life. But yeah, there's that one like Scandinavian word for the feeling of like when you're on a bus and you realize that like, Everyone has their own interior lives where they're the main character and all that. But I don't know. I think that is a better part of, of Flanur and people watching. Um, I think people watching is a huge part of it. Like, because what else can you watch in an intentional walk through a city? You can look at architecture, which I feel like is the way I look at stuff. Yeah, and on watching, actually. So, so with the Flanur being a figure of modernism, one of the ways that we spend our time in like the modern day is just watching things, like whether it be TV our smartphones and leisure, uh, like upon people getting leisure time, it was originally with radios, but the flaneur was, you know, an upper class individual who had the free time to do whatever he wanted. And then he defaulted to watching the same way that we do today. Yeah. I think that like when people are given leisure time, they oftentimes default to just like wanting to be a passive consumer. And while, you know, Baudelard and other French writers could romanticize the idea of the flaneur and like add like meaning to what he was doing. It really is like kind of an easy thing to do Mm -hmm. with your spare time. You're like actively moving through the city, but you're passively consuming. Um, I think the idea also for these writers when they talk about flaneur is that this was some kind of field research for them. So yes, they were passively consuming, but they would then, you know, aggregate all the things they learned about the city and the human experience and modern life. And they'd go back and they'd hammer out like, you know, their next great work. I don't know. I think Oscar Wilde was also alluding to kind of like this, like, I don't know, bon vivant, like living as well. I don't know why that is wrapped up. Maybe he has a different concept of flaneur than even like Baudelaire does. Like, because he's kind of ascribing a value judgment of it to like, I just don't see how like walking around the city can be seen as like, he's he's kind of describing shame when he talks about this period of his life. But what's so shame? Like, no one's getting hurt if you're flaneuring. Like, you're just observing people. Like... Um, yeah, but maybe actually, he was wrapped up in these other things, like a guy spending all his money on clothes, going outside, staring at people. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm actually reading um, this book right now, uh, Main Street by Upton Sinclair. Um, and in the book, there's this woman who is a librarian who moves to a small town and marries a doctor. And Main Street was sort of credited with bringing the idea that people in small towns have small minds into the American consciousness. 
But in the book, the main character is just so fed up with all the prissy uh, people in this town of 3,000 people that she ends up one winter just walking around the edges of town looking at the slums (laughs) for fun. (laughs) There's this really good quote where she says that anywhere where you see three houses, at least one will be a slum. (laughs) I think that's like, I mean, nowadays the suburbanization is even stronger. Um, I mean, what she was looking at, this is the 20s, right? No, yeah, this book came out in like 1920. Yeah, so those are like what we would call like legacy, like streetcar suburbs, you know, or yeah, a small town, like it wasn't a suburban mega development or anything. But even that could bore someone so much where they're just like, I need to look at something else, even if it's like abject and depraved. Yeah, because she was coming from Minneapolis, Minneapolis in St. Mm-hmm. Paul. Um, like that's where she was doing her like undergraduate work. But And then she moved to Chicago actually to be... Uh, to go to library school so she had like this ability to to remain anonymous in those cities Mm -hmm. um, and just become part of the crowd and act out when she wanted and become Mm -hmm. a different person if she felt like it Mm -hmm. but then she on moving to this town she had no privacy like she would just walk down the streets and she'd see like old women behind windows like pulling the curtain Mm -hmm. to look at her and stare at her Mm -hmm. and she i mean i don't know what's going to happen because i'm not done with the book but um hopefully it gets good for her because so far it's just her like getting spiraling. Down <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's people always say like, Oh, in the city, like you don't, you have no privacy um, because you're in a smaller apartment and you have to get packed into like a small grocery store, you know, like things are close together, density and all that. But no, in a, in a small town, like there's more eyes on you. There's more accountability. Um, I, <laughs> it's what, I don't know. It's something about like, seeking out to go just like look at homeless people and look at slums that is always going to be still more interesting than like mega planned stuff um i used to as a kid was living in the sun belt in a very samey suburb and i visit my grandparents in like a old dying upstate new york town and i was just always fascinated by like how the, the sidewalks were like cracked around tree roots and like in rough shape and there were like i don't know i felt like i had been fed so much media of like as a kid, there's always like the spooky house at the end of the street. And there was just none, there, you cannot have that in the Sun Belt. Like, if you have a homeowners association that governs like how high your weeds can grow, like, there's never gonna be that spooky, overgrown, ill maintained house. So, like, seeing one of those for the first time. Yeah, like, we need more vernacular architecture. Yeah. Um, vernacular architecture being architecture that was planned and then built by non-architects, mm-hmm. which you used to be able to do before zoning. Um, yeah. We actually went on a walking tour <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> last weekend to, um, to Noble mm-hmm. Square, which is this older neighborhood in the city. Like the average uh, age of the housing stock is from 1880. Yeah. But you see certain buildings there where you just know like a family built that. Yeah. And like, it's so much more beautiful because it was built organically over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and also you have these like remnants from like bygone times. Like if you walk through the alleys in that neighborhood, the neighborhood is so old that it is pretty much pre-automobile and the alleys for them, they were built for like livestock. Yeah. Like they would keep animals in the back. Mm-hmm. And so like it has a completely different use and a completely different feel. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's crazy to think how agricultural like the city of Chicago was at some point. And then we think of this as this urban thing. They're also talking about how this is one of the areas of Chicago that's so old that it's like pre-indoor plumbing. Um, and that's just so wild to think about. Because like, to me, like indoor plumbing like defines a house. 
You know, like how, homes are almost, there's a lot of ways to define it. I mean, it's shelter from the cold and all that, but like just that you would build a house with no indoor plumbing, you just have an outhouse and back. And then when they laid the plumbing, uh, instead of digging up the streets, they just laid the pipes on it. So the street ends up higher than the houses. And so your second floor became your first floor and people would build these uh, like very short bridges to the street. And you'll see those in neighborhoods like Bridgeport. That's another like, that was a working class neighborhood with an older housing stock as well. But yeah, vernacular architecture, like even if it has like elements of class, classicism, which like some of these will, which is just interesting that like a working class family would like, you know, still want to have something that references the old world. It still is just like part of the practice of people building their own shelters in a way that we kind of get further and further removed from nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, those neighborhoods are more interesting to walk around in for the buildings, but you can still get like the same Flaneur effect walking around just looking at the people. Because ultimately that's what the main point of observation is for the Flaneur. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think of the ideal like environment for Flaneuring to be is like actually like kind of like a park next to uh, like a highly built up urban environment. Mm. like. Uh, Michigan Avenue in Chicago or Central Park in New York City or Golden yeah. Gate Park. And so those are like good places to engage in Flannery. But the main like object of observation for the Flaneur is people. But I've actually found that over the course of my life, like what I look at as I walk around, the object of uh, my interest has changed. So when I was like in high school, I was really interested in clothing and I'd look at what people wore a lot. Then for a period in college, I was really interested in car headlights and I just really liked how like high tech they looked and that's what I'd look at. And then the past few years, I've really trained my eye to look at architectural features and I'm really mm -hmm. interested in being able to discern what about the exterior of a building is original still. For some people, it might be like trees or nature, but for the Flaneur, it really is the fellow people that they're interested in observing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... Like, yeah, I look at architecture, but I think I'm also looking at, like, kind of in a history bent. Um, on the walking tour, they point out just how many buildings um, used to be uh, commercial storefronts. And we say, like, commercial, but that has such a connotation nowadays of, like, a giant supermarket. But these were, like, the same width as an average house, but they were a full-on grocery store. And then as I was, like, watching Urbanist YouTube videos over the weekend, as I often do, um, I watched one where this one was talking about just a small sample case in Kenosha, small town. Um, back when they had 50,000 people in like the turn of the century, they had 180 small grocery stores. And then now they have 100,000 people in Kenosha and they have six grocery stores total in the whole city. And they're all outside like the city limit, not city limits, but they're all off on like highway um, interchanges and stuff. But yeah, it's like that would have meant more people on the streets. I think people in New York always like they always remark that Chicago's streets are strangely empty. And I think that is true. I mean, even in like River North, like with its towering like high rises and like luxury retail and all that, like if you're at the right hour of the day, like you will get like a semi-packed sidewalk. But I don't know, like Chicago can feel kind of empty sometimes. New Yorkers, yeah, I, mean, I don't want to give them anything, but they I noticed right that about, about that. like, I noticed that about train stations. Like even today I was by like the Sheridan station and there was like, a fair amount of people like immediately walking past the outside of the Sheridan station, but then every street and all the other directions, it was like 
you could just feel it like fading immediately mm-hmm. like that vibrancy yeah no it's um i don't know in chicago we used to have like so many more train stations and like more businesses yeah. well we had like more people <laughs> you know we did have like 300 um l stations but that's yeah. actually not a good thing like that's yeah. slowed things down they were too like yeah they were too tightly together yeah but actually but in terms branches of, were taken off in too. terms of track mileage though we're at we're we've actually surpassed our peak yeah because um, a little line. bit yeah yeah yeah, the, yeah orange. the orange line the yeah. um you know the two subway tunnels mm-hmm. like that's been enough to like push us over yeah yeah but i don't know but it's neighborhoods like humboldt park like you'll see the commercial stretches of them where you have just like three-story building after three-story building like this is a place that signals like density walkability commercial stuff like how does this place work when there's no train station there the answer is there used to be a train station but they dismantled it so now it's like so car dependent out there like i noticed that in a lot of the northwest um like farther flung neighborhoods is i've had like the hardest time parking out there like harder than river north because in river north you at least have like the expensive parking meters that deters parking um, but out there, like, you need a car for everything, and like, all the parking is free, or it's a permit spot where you can't park. But yeah, these, the outer neighborhoods of Chicago used to have, like, they used to be more self-functioning, too. It's, I think what's also messed up is that, like, not only, like, can you not get downtown, you need to more so. You, you might be missing business types in your neighborhood. I don't know. It used to be more, like, even in Englewood, which is only in the news nowadays for just its crime and stuff, was one of like the biggest shopping areas outside of the loop. They also have their own branch of the Green Line, which hopefully will get the Racine station rebuilt. Um, That's one of the like, it's one of only five defunct um, L stations right now that haven't been demolished. And that one actually has the best chance of getting reopened, but we'll see. Um, No, I do think that like in Chicago we do have slightly less uh, small businesses than say New York City like when Mm -hmm. I walk around Brooklyn I find that there is like a higher concentration of small businesses yeah like locally owned stuff that like one thing I am proud of Chicago for is that like Chili's Applebee's Olive Garden like cannot survive in the city limits we have one we have one Olive Garden (laughs) I know the Addison one next to the floor and decor yeah there's one yeah we, we got that one but that's like I, I like that in Chicago, like the family run restaurant just out competes like the microwavable bag style restaurants of you know, Applebee's and the like. They can just provide like a better. Uh, I learned recently that um, at Chipotle, all of their meats are from bags, I think, except for chicken. Except for the chicken, yeah. I learned this from going on a few dates with a Chipotle worker. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the new stuff they introduce, I can't imagine that's any fresher because it's like, oh, we got carne asada right now. Oh, yeah, I actually chicken... went to Chipotle right before this and yeah. I saw a guy get like two servings of the carne asada, like their special meat of the mm-hmm. month, which is like $3 per serving. Yeah, I was going to say, like, did you hear the <laughs> did you eavesdrop on the total on the damage of this guy making an $18 yeah. burrito from a fast casual place? Yeah. One time I was at a Chipotle actually and the guy in front of me Got like $20 worth of stuff. A, sing, a, a single person? No, like a bowl. Like a, a $20 bowl? bowl. That's a tricked out bowl, man. Yeah, he got like four. Double, double steak with guac. Right? No, and like double double queso. I don't know what he did, but yeah, Jeez. the workers like <laughs> the workers who were actually serving him were like raising their eyebrows the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> I This sounds like a fever dream, but 
Chipotle used to serve margaritas. They did? Yeah, it was on the menu. They like Every Chipotle had a liquor license. I don't know why they bothered with this, even in places like... I noticed it in Las Vegas uh, when I lived there, but in Chicago is the same case, and it's much harder to get a liquor license in Chicago. Thanks to the, the, uh, the daily mayors really cracked down on that, despite being Irish. Um, I mean, that's a good thing. It's better for yeah. people's health. It is. It is. Like, it, yeah. But yeah, and they had two, they had like uh, an El Jimador margarita, which is a cheaper brand of tequila. And then they had a Patron margarita there. And Patron's very expensive. And that, I remember back in like 2019, I looked at that thing, that margarita, and it was like $14. It was like 14 or $16 for a margarita at Chipotle. I'm like, who is buying this? <laughs> like, <laughs> what is the appeal of someone like just on their lunch break? Like, yeah, I want like a top shelf liquor margarita right now. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, I, like I've said this to people and they're like, I don't think that was the case. I'm like, this is real. This happened. Also, yeah, off of the um, liquor licenses thing in Chicago, yeah, a business type that is interesting has not been corporatized is like the local corner bar in America. Um, in England, they like, they do have like a chain of bars called Weatherspoons and they just like go into neighborhoods and they find like a local bar and they take over the management and they redo the interior and everything. And it's like the McDonald's of bars. And it's funny, you think that America would figure that out. Like if we can homogenize something, if we can like make it a chain, we will. But like the local watering hole um, just can't seem to be. So in the UK, they actually refer to their local pub as their local. Yes, the local. Um, which is actually a really good idea because it reinforces the idea of their pub as being a third place, mm -hmm. um, as being like where you go if you wanna want to run into people. Yeah, yeah. So Chicago used to have like a crazy amount of taverns. I wish I could like pull up the numbers on it or something, but it was like every other block, basically. Like Wisconsin level. Yeah, but it was with a industrial bent. Was the idea? These places were often twenty four hours open. There was one in Bridgeport called Johnny O's, um, and this was also a rare type of a packaged goods store where it was a bar and a liquor store. That's a grandfathered in type. You cannot make, you cannot really open up a new one of those nowadays. But they also had a grill. By the time I lived close to there, it was on its last leg. Um, they still had pretty late hours. Um, I would get a whole bunch of fried shrimp from there. It was a 21 shrimp combo. And I counted, and they were usually pretty close to 21, but not exactly. But they used to open all hours for shift workers. Like there's guys who would come in off their shift at 8 a.m. Uh, and have a beer. And these were, this was next to what was the industrial strip in Bridgeport. Um, and yet, the successive daily mayors got rid of these bars. They just kind of saw them as like a, a holdover from a different era in Chicago, which is true. Like, they're from the industrial era. Like, we're now in a post-industrial Chicago, basically. I mean, all the best stuff got grandfathered in, except for um, pools that... <laughs> pools that have diving sections that are too shallow. Um, oh my God. Yeah, Cause I actually was like a diver in high school mm -hmm. and I did competitive diving. And I remember one time I went to this Catholic school for a swim meet slash diving meet. And I had to dive in this pool that was like seven oh feet deep God. and I'm like six feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I, I don't know. I, I didn't, I didn't get hurt, but it was like, how is this okay? <laughs> That's wild. They're just doing that. <laughs> yeah, those should not be grandfathered in. Jesus, dig that up. Like, like <laughs> just fix it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I was talking to a like an old old Chicagoan. This was a guy. I had a local across the street from me when I lived in Bridgeport, um, and I talked to this eighty-six year old guy, and he said that like, yeah, the taverns were a plus and a minus because the one thing was that like, 
if your dad was an alcoholic factory worker, maybe in a world without a tavern every block, like he would at least have to drink at home or something. <laughs> you at least have to be around him. But it just totally like there's stories of guys who would take their like, you know, check or their cash from work and just take it straight to the bar and spend it that night. You know, um, and it was just like there were fights. There was like other stuff. It was, yeah, it was a third place because it like it was for like ethnic groups, a place where you could find like resources for like English classes or like you know additional work if you needed it or like you know informal childcare. Um, but it just came just soaking booze basically. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So one idea that I came to recently, aka today. Um, which is basically that uh, the idea of the flaneur was a very f early form of trend forecasting <laughs> or um, a think piece where basically, you know, if you think of like how K-Hole, the trend forecasting group, coined the term Normcore and then people adopted it. They're called K-Hole? Yeah, the, the, the organization that came up with the idea of Normcore was called K-Hole. Um, and they, they came out with a couple of different um, trend forecasting documents, um, Normcore being their most famous, but they coined the term and then it became this like, this aesthetic that people uh, came, became aware of and then started to like accentuate and add yeah, to. Like a self-reinforcing thing. Once you add a name to it, then like, then the trend really takes off. Yeah. But this might be one of the earliest examples of that. Yeah. Because like, okay, this guy, Baudelaire, he was a poet. There would never be a poet today <laughs> who would be responsible yeah. for, for really any sort of cultural movement. But mm -hmm. Baudelaire, you know, by like bringing attention to these men in French society mm -hmm. who were very visible and everyone could like pinpoint once, you know, he pointed mm -hmm. them out. This was a really early example of like, uh, like cultural analysis. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Yeah, it's, I think it's it's similar to, I think I, I briefly mentioned this earlier, but like, it wouldn't be a subculture, because it's like a subculture of individuals, you know, who like, they don't meet up and have flaneur meetings or anything, there's not anything structure-wise with if, that. If it was a subculture, this actually <laughs> isn't like the, <laughs> the best analogy, but if I think of like a group of dandies for some reason, I think of like Clockwork Orange, <laughs> and those guys. <laughs> Just a group of like... <laughs> British men in strange outfits, like up to no good. <laughs> yeah, that's what I yeah. think of. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. No, Flinoris were, were were peaceful. Yeah, they weren't. Mm -hmm. They weren't like that. They're individuals. <laughs> so there's a lot of literature you could read on this topic. I didn't read that much of it, but it did read over part of Flinor, The Art of Wondering, by Federico Castigliano. So in this book he goes over like the history of Flanor and there were a couple of like ideas I came away with. Um, the first one was that he suggested that to dress as a Flanor is to dress like a local. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually did this kind of once when I was in Rio de Janeiro. Um, so I was in Rio de Janeiro. I stayed with this local with his him and his family in Maracana. And he was really, really on guard. Um, I mean, Chicago gets this reputation for being violent. Yeah. Rio does too. Yeah, nothing on the um, world. In Rio, it, it's it, the fear is a <laughs> bit more warranted. Yeah. But yeah, he suggested that in order for me to blend in, I should just wear flip flops the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, just like the local thing to do. Like, I mean, well, yeah. Even as opposed to sneakers, like sneakers would give you away as an American. Yeah, I mean, me wandering around with Javianas, I did look uh. a bit more authentic. And also, it was like 107 when I was there. I was there yeah. in February, which is mm -hmm. their summer. Mm -hmm. um, I th you know, 
southern hemisphere yeah. but yeah i wore javianas the entire time and i walked like 12 miles a day in them <laughs> um, but i'm not a sandal wearer sandals no. are too casual so yeah but yeah i like that idea though that mm -hmm. i mean you need to be tasteful also not like culturally appropriate yeah, of you course. can't just like larp as their culture when you go there <laughs> yeah yeah no i when i went to israel i had like tevas or tevas those sandals i do not wear those anymore my my taste did you changed. wear your kippah I, I did not wear a yarmulke everywhere. No, uh, I wait, wore. Wait. I, what is a kippa? Is that the right word? That's the hat. Oh, it's yeah. the same word. Keep keep and a yarmulke is the same. Oh, okay. Thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, well, what were you thinking of? Oh, I was like, I oh. thought I used the wrong word. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, interchangeable. Um, they not wear those in all the like sites and stuff like that. But are you a D cup? In yarmulke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's the size ranges of yarmulkes are actually kind of wild some people go for like an almost like beanie shaped kind of one and then i don't know i think a smaller one is kind of tasteful you have to get it then you start wearing it a clip and people always wonder how do bald guys wear yarmulkes suede suede yarmulkes the friction the coat like oh wow yeah the frictional coefficient between a bald man i don't man's think i've ever seen a, a bald guy with the yarmulke no they, they stay on there they do yeah <laughs> i just I can't be doing that in Israel because that sounds like the sweatiest, like you're just going to be suction cupped to your head, basically. But yeah, all the Israelis, like, they're like, oh, you wear the right sandals. We all wear these. And that was like, I was just trying harder to fit in to, in Israel because to the listener, I am like six foot two and blonde. I don't look like an Israeli or a Jewish person. So I was like trying to, whatever I could change, I was trying to change. But yeah, it's just also, it's like fun to try and pass somewhere. When I was in Germany, where I have an easier, t easier time passing, I stopped in a Uniqlo, and I like, was at the checkout, and I was like, all right, I'm not confident in my German at all, but I am confident in like mimicking Germans. And they all say hello in like the same way. They all go, hello. And this like <laughs> sing-songy kind of thing with a little, like a little strange, like tongue flick before it. And I did that at the checkout, and the like checkout girl just completely spoke to me in German, and I was like, ah, I can't speak German. <laughs> and we, we did the checkout in English because everyone speaks English in Berlin. Um, but it was just fun to like try to try and pretend briefly to see if I could fit in. But it's like so much actually harder than that to truly fit into a culture. I like get sad when I think about that because I mean I love America. I like I am an American, but I think if like oh how what if I did just choose a different country and just set up my life there? But like. I think you'll, accepting you'll never be a kid in that culture. Like there's something about childhood culture that's shared between your generation, you know? Like it's a, I don't well, know. Well, childhood is when the things that are implicit about a culture are made explicit. Yeah. Adults will explain things to children that they wouldn't likely mm -hmm. um, explain to you in as clear detail if yeah. you were an adult foreigner. Mm -hmm. And I just think about like, yeah, there's going to be these artifacts of like earlier in your life that like if you as an expat as a young professional, even as the youngest professional, if you up and move, if I moved to Germany at like when I was 22, like I, maybe I watched some like German shows as a kid, Max und Moritz, but I didn't watch the other like more obscure ones. It's like, if you ever meet someone of our age group, you know, I'm 27, like someone who wasn't allowed to watch SpongeBob as a kid, you know, it's like, they're a little different. Like they're, they're missing out on like a reference or something. And it's, not to hold up SpongeBob yeah, as a They have only child vibes. Yeah, they have homeschooled vibes. <laughs> <laughs> um, In his book, another thing that he brought up that you've also already kind of brought up already, mm -hmm. it's just that 
Uh, Flannery is a primarily solo activity, which made me think about when we were in a corn maze yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> we went to a corn maze with like 12 other people. And I was just, in, I was in the back, so I just followed people the entire time. Mm-hmm. And like not being able to like, just relying on other people when you're walking around, it, you don't take it in the same way. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just sprinted ahead in the corn maze and I was second to finish. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I, I looked at the map. I did do that, but I'd never really lost my bearings in it. I don't know. I had just kind of a sense, like an internal kind of compass, I think. Um, you can tell with like the sun and the... So we were in the middle of the day. We were in like the later afternoon at that point. So you can kind of tell which side the sun was on. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, maybe that's a very straight male thing. I really pride myself in my like orientation and sense of direction. Um, I hate popping up out of a subway and like not having my exact bearings. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've actually found that like of the sort of like ways people purport to be psychic, that scrying or like the... Um, you know, locating things through uh, psychic abilities. That one actually has the best results in terms of scientific study. Wow. So that's like yeah, police will hire like a psychic. No, they don't, hardly, no, no, that no. never happens anymore. But like that use of it, of like, oh, can you locate this one object? Like, but no, if you're like in a place, or if you're just relying on intuition to get yourself out of maze, like maybe there's something there. So we were, so, with, we were with someone that finished it in 10 minutes. Yeah, I was right behind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no, I was impressed with that. Because yeah. I was, I mean, actually, maybe I was in there for maybe 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. I, it felt like forever, though. I was also flaneuring a bit in the maze because I wanted to see certain bits of it, which is dumb because it's a maze. It all looks the same. It's all made of corn. But it was like, basically, you entered the maze. There was like a very conventional grid-like maze part. And then they had, to, to the bird's eye, the shape of a goat made in it and i was like oh i kind of want to walk around the goat you know i kind of want to see like oh this is where the head would be this would be like you know the mouth of the goat so i did that and i kind of appreciate it you know they carved this thing like yeah. out of the earth i wanted to pay my respects but yeah. yeah i wonder if they like plant i bet they probably just plant the corn in like you know a straight row for the entire field and then they later like weed it out because i bet it's even more confusing if you try to like plant the corn seeds in that pattern yeah. Oh no, they just they just um I keep saying carving. They just take a <laughs> God, I'm really exposing. They thresh. Like, they thresh, they thresh the corn. yeah, they thresh all the corn in that shit. That's a Hunger yeah. Games word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a very Hunger Games <laughs> I yeah. I think at various points in this podcast I'm gonna out myself as like not knowing tons about agriculture or nature. And it's maybe a bit of an insecurity. I can now. only name like five tree species. Oak, maple. <laughs> I think I know this from the construction angle, less from like an arboreal angle. I'm just <laughs> going to say that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I Yeah, I spend very little time outside, um, it's <laughs> unless I'm walking. But yeah, if I'm like sitting so. still outside, like the feeling of air on my skin that's stale and stagnant, yeah. it freaks me out. I like don't <laughs> understand uh, why people... Uh, want to eat outside and stuff. Oh, you're not, you don't like outdoor dining? No. No, I, this is what I will admit to, is that like, I, I think I try and like LARP as a European in Chicago. Like there's a little like, I love when there's outdoor seating. It got a little old in COVID where like, it was only outdoor seating for stuff. Like then the kind of just like, oh, who Like, especially as we try to stretch the season like deeper into fall and spring, it's your food gets cold so fast out there, but. No, I think like outdoor cafe culture 
it'd be cool if Chicago had a little bit more of that in the summer. Um, but I was talking to an old, 50-something-year-old Chicago person, lifelong Chicagoan, and they were saying that, like, I think we were, we were talking about dating. I was talking about the current state of, like, dating in Chicago, and he was talking about when he was back on the market in the 80s and 90s. And he says there's a seasonality to it that was not a thing back then. He's like, yeah, Chicago is more seasonal now, like, that we have outdoor dining and all these outdoor things to do. Like, I guess Chicago is just more of an indoor place in the 80s and 90s, the way he was describing it. Like, whether it was summer or winter, you would still go to this restaurant or whatever. Like, you wouldn't modify your plans too much besides, like, going to a Cubs game in the summer. Can't do that in the winter. But no, I'm a big fan of seasonality. We don't have that in Las Vegas, and I think that it... It's bad for the soul if you don't have, if you don't have winter. Yeah. But, uh, like, upon the air becoming cold for the first time this year, as with every year, I just got this, like, sudden rush. Uh, <laughs> where, like, I, like, um, I don't know. It's just, like, in the wintertime, it feels like time kind of collapses, mm -hmm. where um, time and energy become infinite when every day feels like one long day. Um, <laughs> like, upon, like, it becoming cold, I got, like, two job offers, I got started podcast. You know, things are going good. <laughs> there is like an industrialness to like winter. You just feel like there's less in the way. Like I feel like I get more work done in winter. I don't know, I feel like a medieval peasant who like you have this like fun summer and then in winter you just like hunker down. Like all right, time to like, I don't know. Spring and summer are like a daze. Like I feel yeah. so disoriented and out of it. Yeah. And like I can't remember anything that happens. But then once <laughs> winter and fall come, I'm like... I can remember things again. I, I had an ex who grew up in Michigan, and she described the exact opposite, where, like, I try to still do a lot of stuff um, in winter. I think, like, that's the time that you tried that restaurant you never tried because you were too busy going to the beach in the summer, like, you know, to do those indoor things. Like, go to cultural events. I, I like concerts in the winter more because I'm just not a big music festival guy, and so I just like when it's just a single artist comes and does a show at an indoor venue. Like, it's just more guaranteed. There's, like, yeah. less... Yeah, I um, I was going to see this act, Godspeed You Black Emperor, at Riot Fest with a friend, and I was just dragging my feet because I did not want to buy a ticket. And then they like had a last-minute like pre-show indoor show, and I'm like, bam, instantly, like, yes, I will go to that. <laughs> and the weather turned out to be like rainy and miserable uh, at Riot Fest, so I was so happy that I had the like guaranteed good time. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, to circle back to the book, um, Flinero, The Art of Wandering by Federico Castigliano, um, one final thing that I took away with, you know, by briefly looking it over. Uh, so Flannery involves walking slowly. Um, it's an indication of a person's upper class status. Um, and this made me think of Justin Timberlake's movie In Time. Why would you ever think about Justin Timberlake's movie In Time? That is like such a bad movie. Have you ever seen it? <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, Olivia the, Wilde is his mom. I think the entire <laughs> movie was styled by Versace. And oh. so it has like this like capsule aesthetic yeah. that's like very like distinct what year was it i could look it up oh man okay i also think it's funny <laughs> that um the movie is called um in time and the main actor is justin timberlake because it's like just in time time yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. it was actually yeah, yeah. that's actually like some there, have you ever heard of freak city la no. it's like this like clothing brand but oh, one of the founders is named just in time but um <laughs> Wait, just a, there was a just in time manufacturing. Was like Wait, a, this actually came. I got just in time, a Canadian animated television series. No, this is not it. Okay, <laughs> it's in time, in time, in time. Justin Timberlake. 
Okay, but no, this movie is... They have, like, the yeah, on their arms, they have how much time they have, and you work, and then they download time for you, and then you pay fees to the government, and you lose time. And Yeah, it's from 2011. Okay, but there are some scenes in the movie where um, Justin's character, um, you know, he gets, like, all this extra time, which mm-hmm. is equivalent to money, but he's used to being, like, a lower-class person who has to work really quickly and run around really quickly. So he's, like, inside of this upper-class... Uh, neighborhood and he's running mm-hmm. and like the people around him like are shocked <laughs> yeah 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 because they have like that leisure on their time yeah on their side no I definitely walk with purpose I get a little I shouldn't but I get like annoyed when I get stuck behind people on sidewalks but that's a that's a human condition kind of thing I don't know I'm just yeah fast walker I actually run in public on a weekly basis if not almost nearly daily because between like all the public transit trips that I take, I oftentimes end up running to catch a train. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, pretty regularly, I'll, I'll get, like, ten rides a day. Wow. Ten rides? Wait, ten rides a day? Yeah. Between, like, my job and, like, things I'm doing. Wow. I yeah. Wow. I took, like... I've been using the bike share bikes a lot more as one of my cars in the shop. Um, I think I did, like, five or seven trips in a day, like, going around to different job sites. But no, uh... With running in public, like, it's, I don't know, this is very, people have remarked on this, but, like, if you're in running gear, fine. No one thinks it twice of it. But, like, yeah, if you're dressed not in running gear, like, I get concerned when I see people like that. I used to, um, back in college, like, we'd be going back from a bar or something, and it'd be cold, and I probably, like, didn't dress warm enough. Um, and it'd be at the end of the night, and I just want to get home, so I'd just sprint home because I hate the, the cold. Um, but I don't know. I think female friends yeah. told me I probably shouldn't do that because that could be very yeah. scary to any woman at night. Just to, yeah. I was friends with some high T boys in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I remember one of them, he would just like, when he needed to get from place to place, he would just sprint for like miles. Wow. And that was his way of getting around. <laughs> yeah. I never liked running like that really. Um, but also I should stipulate. Okay. So when I say 10 rides per day, that is counting like link trips. So like to get to oh, work, yeah. I have to do like you know at least yeah, one bus train, train kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, t- but it is pretty regularly like yeah. ten or pretty close to mm-hmm. it. Oh, but on the class basis of like time, that is there was this great like long Reddit post by some guy years ago. Basically, this guy works with lots of high net worth individuals, and he does a quick rundown of what each kind of net worth level is like and how that affects your life. Um, and I forget what mark this is. Maybe this is like, I think this is net worth in excess of like 500 million or like into the billion thing. But you can buy, like your time becomes, you can start to buy time. And the way you buy time is like, with private jets, travel time is cut down so fast. Like you can now essentially teleport. <laughs> yeah. um, and then there's also the buying of other people's time. Like you get to this point of wealth where like, if there's, you're richer than most talent celebrities, but not finance celebrities. You know, you're richer than actors. You're richer than athletes. You're not richer. You're maybe only poorer than financiers. But you can buy any of those, like, poorer, rich people's time. You can get, like, you know, tea time with Tiger Woods or something like that. Like, it's not just that you have more time and that, like, you know you're so freed up, but that like it then gives you access to other people's and the whole world will kind of bend around you to make things yeah. happen. There's this quote that I like, which is that regular decent people learn to deal with their own problems internally 
and not offload and not offload them onto others. But rich people do that by habit, um, <laughs> which is sort of like the plot of the White Lotus, where mm-hmm. um, wealthy people, they're even their like petty problems, like mm-hmm. will destroy all of these like hotel workers' lives. Yeah. <laughs> um, in working with high net worth individuals, I found that as you get richer, you become more. This is a very basic observation. Other people think this as well. You become more dependent on other people as you get richer. Like, yes, you are more financially independent. You know, you can weather any kind of downturn or turn or storm. Um, but like in my little studio apartment, no one's in there but me, unless there was an emergency and the maintenance man had to come in. But like to a rich person's like single family home, they have their dog walker coming in all the time. They have their maid. They have like, you know, maybe an au pair living in there. Um, and then they have like tradesmen and like coming in to fix stuff all the time. There's a lot more like in and out to their lives. They have a driver instead of driving themselves places. Like it's less privacy. Like we basically talked about privacy earlier. I Um, feel like they also just sort of like pick up random friends who are happen to be working class people who they just end up coasting with for, for a long time. Like, have you seen the, um, Alex Murda? Uh, documentary no i know the Netflix. rough outline of that story yeah that they're the like powerful lawyer family well they came out with season two recently but there's this um woman interviewed in season two who is friends with um the wife that got murdered and she was like she was a very good friend of this woman but she was paying her all the time to just like do random <laughs> stuff for her like oh go get me some chicken mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah the, the term gopher doesn't get used anymore but that was this thing of like being a gopher for someone is you're just a person who goes for things um but oh, well now you have doordash yeah, <laughs> yeah. but like for little just like personal things i mean yeah formalized personal assistants are always you know something that higher end executives have but no i've directly seen what you're describing of just like yeah, a lower class, like, friend slash, yeah, kind of paid to be around sometimes. I had a client, like, who, yeah, had a friend in the neighborhood who um, would, like, watch the house, like, the house watcher. And it was clear that this woman was not from the same, you know, she had just, I think it was her family had that house. So that's how they afford to stay in that neighborhood. And then, like, the whole neighborhood has risen. Oh my much gosh! I just realized her. that's kind of like what's. Ha- Are you? <laughs> what's <laughs> happened with me? I've been um, cat sitting for some lesbians who have like an Airbnb quality house, um, but I, I guess I'm friends with them. Like they invited me to their wedding and I went to the reception. But yeah, yeah, I, can, I see how you can get kind of roped into that. Yeah, because the thing is, like, they still need things, and I've yeah. like. Yeah, I've done things for clients in construction that are just like, they'll be traveling between their many different houses and, oh, we need something FedExed or something. And if you're just like a trustworthy but lower class than them person, that's very valuable to them. Like just trust. Because sometimes you just do need a body to be somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I even, yeah, I, I worked at a company and we had a guy on staff. It was construction management. Um we had all these different construction managers and we had one guy who was just like the driver for the owner of the company, but he'd also just like do things as needed. He was just like a guy, but he couldn't do anything executive assistant wise. This man would not be able to send an email. Um, he was from a security background. He was like a bouncer and stuff that I don't think we had that come up <laughs> in handy uh, too often, but yeah. Bouncers are hot. <laughs> <laughs> there was like a show in the UK. I was reading the description of it. It was about like, the stories of these five different bouncers who are friends. And they like, I don't know, 
they suffer a lot. Like they, they have to be tough all the time, but they have to turn it off. They're kind of like cops without the pay. <laughs> but yeah, and I think they, they have themselves wrapped up in their job a lot too. It's like hard to leave it at home. You know, your job is to be tough and intimidating. Then you have to come home and be civilized. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing to touch on is just what infrastructure uh, do you think enables Flunar? Um, I think t- talking about the backpack thing <laughs> you're saying with um, like being a public transit person or just like being a person out in the city for any extended amount of time. Like, I don't know. There were things we used to have that we don't have anymore. Like I already said, like we used to have more businesses and all that. But yeah, like public toilets, those went away in America. You know, Europe still has those. Um, France has the pissoir, like a, a, almost a culture of urinating outside. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to think what else. I, I've always just, the times I've taken public transit to work, I just hate having a backpack. I feel like a child with it. Um, yeah, I don't like going into restaurants with a backpack. Yeah, I tend feels... to carry like a cross-shoulder bag now. Yeah. And in that, I actually carry Narcan, a tourniquet, and a pocket knife. <laughs> Uh, the pocket knife is just yeah. for wild dogs in yeah. case they attack me. Such a big problem in Chicago. <laughs> the wild dogs that control our city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I should, I, yeah, you gave me Narcan now. <laughs> Sorry. No. Oh, you yeah. gave, <laughs> that's going to sound like you just saved my life. No. Yeah. No, yeah. You gave me a, a thing of Narcan to keep with me. Um, God, I hope I never yeah. have to use that. But I, someone once told me you can just go to like any hotel, even if you're not staying there, and they'll just like mind your bag for you. But I think to kind of go back to the style thing, it's like you can do that if you're well dressed enough. You can go into a hotel and be like, "Oh, hi, this is my bag. Like, could I just keep here, keep this here for a bit, and then just like, I don't know, maybe slip a five to the guy, or something." Um, but yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of respectability maxing, where you just like try and dress all prim and proper all the time, because I think it like it helps you navigate these places more. Like talking about public restrooms, like if you're in a sport coat, you can use any public restroom in a like anywhere you're just like respectable and you just get to yeah yeah like when i was in art school i definitely i definitely dressed different i was more experimental more all more all yeah Yeah. uh but um i just kept finding that in like different social situations i wasn't fully comfortable with how i looked Mm -hmm. and then i did like sort of um yeah i i think part of it was just becoming more mature and like Mm -hmm. not wanting to wear outfits that like a teenage boy would wear yeah. but okay. yeah um i yeah now i feel like with the wardrobe that i have i can really enter any environment mm-hmm. and feel comfortable which yeah. is important mm-hmm. i i don't know i think you know the first thing you get when you start dressing a little more respectably or whatever is you get like people let you places and then the next level of that is like I think I've been in situations where like there's been a weird homeless person or something and i've seen like people look to me for safety or something because I'm like the tallest and <laughs> like most dressed person there I'm like what am I supposed to, like what am I supposed to do but yeah if someone collapses you have to give them CPR <laughs> yeah exactly um I did spring into action recently on the train um there was a guy who collapsed like the the doors opened to the train he just collapsed straight forward and then um his friend was with him he's like this happens all the time he has a condition <laughs> Yeah, he said, but um, he was like kind of half in the doorway. So I like jumped over to like the 
thing where you call the um, the conductor of the train. There was a guy just in the way, just deer in the headlights, just like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I, just yeah. had to, I had to physically push him out of the way and then like call the conductor to tell her not to like try and force the doors or anything. But yeah, it felt kind of good to snap into action. You always wonder about your abilities to like do that under pressure. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I sort of had that happen in a way on the Narcan topic. So this was pre-Narcan actually, but I was in high school and I showed up to art class um, and there was this one guy in the in my class who was kind of a lot of trouble, but I showed up and his eyes were like so pretty. I was like, wow, I never noticed them before. Um, it was because they were dilated. He was yeah. overdosing. Oh my God. Um, so he had taken like a whole bottle of oxycodone. But this was before I even knew what opiates were. Yeah. This was like... Mm-hmm. 2013 like this was really early yeah. so um i went up to my teacher <laughs> and i was like teacher? um but no actually before i went to my teacher all the people i was like seated at this table with they had like no intention of helping this guy they were like he uh, you know he does drugs like this is his problem like hell? i was actually talking to them and i was like um what if he dies and they were like it's not my responsibility what i was like but i mean they were like 16 uh, it's it's okay now I guess but anyways I went to I went up to my teacher, and I was like uh, he's overdosing and then she ran out of the room for like five minutes and she you like, get help yeah well, yeah but leaving the, you leaving the class <laughs> but no she didn't say a word to me before she yeah. ran out <laughs> and then I went, yeah, so then I, I had to go hard. back to him but I was like literally like pushing him to keep him awake because mm-hmm. he was like if I fall asleep I'm gonna die my my heart rate is 10 beats per minute right now oh my god and I was like okay um, but yeah anyways he had to go to the hospital for 10 days that's wild after that in my AP psych class we had this kid who would just take never overdose but he's just taking too much Xanax basically but I think my story is more lighthearted. I would just mess with him by like putting my hands in front of his face <laughs> and he'd like try and swat them away but he was really slow and unresponsive so I'd just kind of do that but he was at I don't know we yeah he was, barred out. <laughs> he was barred out he was barred out and if he's like and we had the most like sweet and wholesome like Minnesota um, AP psych teacher and he's like ah oh, he's kind of a wacky kid <laughs> and it's like oh, he's rolling on sand like Never, never spoil it to him. But you know, not that AP psych teachers are like medical professionals in any stretch of the word. But like, you think he would have been able to notice this kid's fucking eyes were saucers? And he was, yeah. Um, yeah. Truly public spaces that the that the that a flaneur could use anymore. I mean, you got libraries, of course. I like that um, that saying that like. I mean, or, I mean, with the exception of like old gay guys, upper class people are not walking around in this way anymore i mean they go to different places to take instagram photos for (laughs) sure but yeah this is not an activity really in the way it used to be i think that it is for like urbanists which Mm -hmm. we both like vaguely identify as Mm -hmm. um yeah that's just something to like geek out on it's Mm -hmm. not like the only thing to do before like radio and tv are invented Mm -hmm. which is funny we had open house chicago recently which is where like all these you know, architecturally significant buildings are open to the public. Um, and there's tons of uh, open sites on like the south and west sides. And I used to live on the south side, which is, to those who don't know, much economically worse, like neglected than the north side of the city. Um, and you will see kind of upper classy people like who are, you know, maybe members or large contributors to the Chicago Architecture Center and all that. And it's like, there's a bit of gawking, there's a bit of ruins porn, some of the like, because some of the sites they open, like, 
the reason they're not open to the public is not because they're like privately run things is because they're like semi-abandoned theaters like you can see these like old theaters from like the golden age of um movie theaters that are just kind of yeah out. yeah i met this girl once where she had gone on um one of those tours where they had opened up this factory that was the first place they made sliced bread <laughs> and <laughs> wow. they just let everyone run around it for like a couple of hours oh, <laughs> just don't fall through a hole or something <laughs> yeah. no Urban exploration, urbex, as people call it, um, where you like explore abandoned stuff, that is not Flannery. <laughs> no, actually, it is. I, yeah. um, in like the, the articles I read, yeah. at least a couple of them talked about urban exploration yeah. as being like one of the activities of the Flannery, but not in the modern sense. So, yeah. in the modern sense, urban exploration is when you go to like an abandoned building and take pictures <laughs> that are of usually kind of bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, of bad graffiti. Yeah, it's something that you think is cool when you're like 17. It's, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think most people grow out of it. Yeah, I'm still in <laughs> groups for it. Like, even though I never did it, I'm just in Facebook groups for them, like Midwest Urban Exploration. And it's just like guys in their 30s, <laughs> and like just wandering, like, oh, look at this abandoned mental hospital. <laughs> and it's like, oh man. Yeah. Um, I just get scared because it's like, it's trespassing and also homeless people and wild dogs. Yeah. yeah. It's I, like, yeah. I actually tried to go urban exploring a few times in high school, but it, it was always so half-baked. Like, I remember one time we just entered, like, like a new... It was, like, it was like a new development where it was halfway done. Oh, like half-built houses. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't anything old. It was just, yeah. like, looking at cinder blocks. It mm-hmm. wasn't interesting. Yeah. The Damon silos um, on the southwest side of the city... Um, or these old grain silos that have been abandoned forever. Um, and that was a thing we did in college, was like sneaking around there and you'd climb to the top of it. I went there with a friend who was like very quiet, almost non-communicative, I'd say. And he didn't know what he was signing up for. He's like, just wanted to be included. And then it turns out he had like a terrifying fear of heights. And we were climbing on a 15-story fire escape. But the view from the top is beautiful. People have died there pretty frequently, though. Yeah, like kids just doing exactly what we were doing. But you just, if you don't watch your step, you'll just fall, like, through a whole 15 yeah. stories. I'm so, like, not used to being in, like, elevated places that I actually, I could be one of those people. Because, <laughs> like, I'm not, yeah. used, I'm not used to it. No. Um, I mean, mostly with, like, elevated, like, places mm-hmm. like mountains. Because I've only been on mountains a handful of times in my life. Uh, I have to watch out for that kind of yeah. thing. Thanks to just like building code, it's like you kind of live your life on guardrails almost. Like you couldn't fall off unless you really, really tried with buildings. It's interesting about like train platforms and a few places left where you still can. Like yeah. if you were so willing, you can fall over the edge. And yeah, like the, the Sheridan rail. station that I was at today. Yeah. That one hasn't been updated since it was built like 100 years ago. Yeah. Like they don't even have the like the blue tape on the edge of the platform. The oh, the tactile, the edge. yeah, like foot thing. They yeah. don't even have that. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like you it. could just walk right off. Yeah, if you're blind. I saw a blind guy today. He was dressed very fashionably, and he had a black cane instead of a white cane. Um, which the white cane, like, the significance is, like, not for blind people. It's for, like, sighted people to see that, like, oh, this person is blind. You yeah. Know? But this guy was putting fashion above that, I guess. He had a very good look, though, the whole thing. He was, like, very Halloween-y and, like, crunchy, yeah. I would say. But, yeah. Um, do, you, do you want to wrap it up? Yeah. So what are your closing thoughts on Flannery? Um, I think it's a useful term. I think it's like, it's fun to kind of read about like 
the period back then and like the origins of modernism because we feel like <laughs> modernism feels so old now that we're like you know 170 years past these writings i suggest to anyone to like walk intentionally more like do aimless walks um be a pedestrian if you don't live in a place where you can easily do that if you live in a suburban mega development i'm sorry man maybe like every on your next travels <laughs> like go do that as a tourist a lot of the stuff you find on flinnering like article wise is extolling like being a flinnering tourist like anthony bourdain you know like explore that little alleyway like get out there but you can just do it in your own backyard um to me i think that um Flannery and flinnering, I think that it is a way to add additional meaning to the everyday patterns of your life, um, which I think is really important. I think that most of life is work, and you have to really enjoy that work to enjoy life. Yeah. I mean, people now, they don't have to enjoy walking, uh, or they, they don't have to walk as much as they used to, uh, but being able to add this additional layer of meaning to an everyday process will make you appreciate those things that you see every day more. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's helpful in that way. Mm -hmm. I think my closing thing is uh, every so often, please check out your AirPods if you're walking down the street. That's my, that's my grumpy old man thing is I want people to like, I don't know, I get a little bummed out when I see that like everyone has AirPods in and we're all just like independently walking through the street as opposed to like communally walking through the street. But yeah. Yeah, don't dampen your senses. No, yeah. All right. Yeah. Have a good one. See ya.